Would you open your Bibles with me, please, to Romans chapter 12. Romans is Paul's most clear and extensive explanation of his teaching of the good news about Christ. And in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the entire book of Romans turns a corner. From chapters 1 through 11, the Apostle has explained to us what God has done for us. And in verses 1 and 2 of chapters of chapter 12, there is a turning point. And at that turning point, the Apostle Paul begins to direct our attention to what our response should be to what God has done for us as he explained it in chapters 1 through 11. Where does this lead to what God has done for us? The mercies of God that we have experienced in our lives that he's freely offered to us are like a giant arrow pointing us in a particular direction for life. And the Apostle wants to talk about that. I'm reading from the New International Version. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. In the days in which Paul lived and worked and wrote, religion had very little to do with how you lived your life. You could be a cheat, a liar, a murderer, and still be very religious. Maybe that's still true today. Uh, but at any rate, for the pagans in the Roman Empire, religion had very little to say about how one should live one's life. Religion was tied up with two things. It was tied up with public service, with being a good citizen. You would go and offer a sacrifice to the emperor as to a god. That was part of your public duty as a good citizen. Or it was a private thing that was linked in with your emotional life and how you felt and your private association in the so-called mystery religions. It was either a public performance or it was a private thing that had nothing to do with how you really lived your life with other people. My God and me was the motto of the mystery religions. And Paul is going diametrically against this tendency starting with Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, when he says, because of what God has done for us, there is a certain way that we should orient our lives, that we should live our lives in this world. He says, I urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters. This isn't just a calm exposition of intellectual truth to Paul. He says, he urges us. He appeals to us. He wants us to get engaged with our emotions and our mind and our whole being 
He says, I urge you. And he says, I urge you, therefore. This little word, therefore, points all the way back to the beginning of the book of Romans. Where Paul said, this is the way God loves us. This is what he's done for us. In Romans chapter 1 verse 17, we read that, and the verses following, Paul explains that a person can be right before God, not on the basis of what they do, but on the basis of trusting what God has done. The classic formula that has been used through the centuries to describe that is, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Those who are right before God are right before God because of their trust, not in what they have done, but in what God has done. And then Paul asks the question, starting with chapter 12, what does a life like that look like? Day to day, in our business, in our relationship with our wives or husbands or children, mothers or fathers, what does a life lived in faith look like? This morning I'd like to have you look with me carefully at these two verses that are the hinge in the book of Romans. Paul says, I urge you in view of God's mercy, in view of all that God has done for us, to offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. And I'd like to look at a number of points with you this morning of what this really means, what a life of faith looks like. First of all, I'd like to look with you at the idea of the mercy of God. Because Paul says, in view of God's mercy, we are to live and behave in a certain way because of His mercy toward us. Mercy is not a word that we hear very much these days. Occasionally we'll come across it in the news, but it's not a word that is part of our everyday vocabulary that we use in business or at school or as we listen to the radio or TV. What is mercy? Well, mercy is not saying to each other, I'm okay, you're okay. Of course, you know the story of the two psychiatrists who met on the street, and the one said to the other, you're okay, how am I? Mercy is not saying to one another, you're okay, I'm okay. Because mercy implies something that has been done wrong. Mercy means that something has been done wrong that we can expect something as punishment for it. And then mercy comes. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul explains why we need mercy. He says, since we have been justified through faith, since we have a good standing relationship with God on the basis of trusting in Him, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. A few verses later in verse 10, he explains why we need peace with God. He explains that we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son while we were God's enemies. This is not a very happy bit of information. But the truth of the matter is 
that the Bible teaches that apart from a relationship with God in Christ, we are not God's buddies, we are His enemies. The problem that stands between us and God without Jesus is not a problem that a couple buddies can solve over a beer in the backyard. The problem is much too serious for that. Paul explains that without Christ, we were enemies of God. And this is the bad news. I don't know if you've ever been to Amsterdam, but if you ever get to the city, Amsterdam is the world capital of diamond cutting. Much of the diamond harvest from South Africa and the other African nations was exported to Europe, straight to Amsterdam, where the best diamond cutters in the world work. And Anne and I once had an opportunity to visit a diamond cutting factory. I guess that's what you call them. And uh, while we were there, we saw some beautiful things cut out of diamonds. But it was interesting that consistently these beautiful stones were displayed on a black velvet background. And in front of this dark background, the beauty and the color of those stones became more and more clear. What we have just read together in Romans chapter 5 is the dark background of God's mercy. We are enemies of God. But He has taken a step toward us in mercy and built a bridge between us and Him through Jesus Christ. We are not His buddies without Jesus. We are His enemies. But the good news that is presented by Paul in front of this dark background is that God's mercy is available for us. And God has stepped out of time and eternity into our world, the time and space we live in, in Jesus, and made a way for us to be His friends again. That is the good news. And that is the heart of the message of God's mercy. And the Apostle Paul explains, in light of what God has done, this unimaginable step of building the bridge from Himself to us, there can only be one possible response on our part if we really understand what He's done. And He says, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves, He says, your bodies. But it means more than just our bodies. It means our entire being as sacrifices to Him. God's mercy leads us to an action of offering ourselves to Him. There's a second point I'd like to have you look at with me this morning in these passages. And that is that when we offer ourselves to God, God is pleased with it. God loves life. I want to reemphasize that. God loves life. It was His idea. He's the Maker. And He loves life. Many people have a wrong understanding of what sacrifice to God means. They think that it means that God wants to crush and destroy the drive for life and happiness and joy that we have. 
that He somehow wants us to give up everything that's enjoyable to us. If anything makes us happy, if anything's fun, says this philosophy, there must be something wrong with it. It's either fattening or sinful. God loves life. The Old Testament gives us the proper picture of what sacrifice is really about. It gives us the real understanding of the background of what the word sacrifice means. Sacrifice for us, unless we're deeply rooted in the Old Testament, like the Jewish people were at the time that Paul wrote this, sacrifice for us doesn't have the same picture that it did for them. Sacrifice for us means maybe dark tones. Tones of having to give things up. And there is an element of that. But the predominant, dominating element of the teaching of the Old Testament about sacrifice is that a sacrifice time is a time of joy. In the Old Testament, the idea of sacrifice is associated with joy and celebration. What happened when a sacrifice was made in the Old Testament? Apart from the sin offering which was the offering for the sin of the people on the Day of Atonement uh, and at other times when someone had sinned against God. They could bring a sin offering. That offering is in dark tones. But most of the offerings that were brought to the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament were so-called thank offerings or celebration offerings. In the case of most of them, the person offering the sacrifice gave the sacrifice to God of grain or the sheep or the animal, and then in a sense was invited by God to sit down and have a celebration of eating the sacrifice. After it had been cooked, there would be a party. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, we read about the husband of Hannah, the father of Samuel. There was a certain man, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, we read, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and all her sons and daughters, and then he gave a double portion to Hannah. What was happening here? He brought his sacrifice, and in the moment that the sacrifice was offered to the priest and given to the priest, a change of ownership took place. This animal, this sacrifice, was no longer Elkanah's. It now belonged to God. But what happened then? As soon as that change of ownership happened, Elkanah and his family were, so to speak, invited by God to have a party with him. The sacrifice was barbecued and they sat down and celebrated. God loves life. And God wants us to understand that as we offer ourselves to Him, it's to be a time of celebration. A change of ownership takes place when we give ourselves to God. But then the party begins. God loves life. 
And this sacrifice that Paul talks about as we read here, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer yourselves as sacrifices to God. And then there are three words that describe what the sacrifice of ourself to God really means. First of all, it's living. The word life and living is very important in the book of Romans. It appears in that one book 23 times as a noun and 14 times as a verb. Life, life, living, life, live, life. The whole book just pulses with life. And as we give ourselves to God, life is the result. He doesn't want to destroy us. He wants to have us live life to the fullest. In Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through 14, Paul explains the background to what this really means. In the same way, Paul writes, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. Evil is anti-life. Perhaps you've read the book by the therapist Scott Peck, People of the Lie. In that book, he describes his struggle as a psychotherapist to come to grips with the fact that there are genuinely evil people in the world. And he describes evil as he tried to think it through as being essentially anti-life. That is a key characteristic of evil. But God is for life. God loves life. God looked at all that He had made in Genesis 1 and He said, that's good. That is very good. We live the most when we forget ourselves and give ourselves to the Lord. I don't know if you've ever noticed yourself when you're at a party or some kind of celebration or a meeting. When do we enjoy ourselves the most? When we're thinking about how we look? When we wonder if we're saying the right thing? When we're concerned about whether we're behaving in the proper way? I don't know about you, but I find those experiences very uncomfortable. The times that I enjoy life the most are the times when I forget myself completely. And I have a suspicion that that's true of most of us. And the secret of life, as far as the message of the gospel is concerned, we find in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 35, where this is almost a commentary, or the other way around, that Paul's comment of offering ourselves to God as a living sacrifice is almost a commentary on these words of Jesus. In Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 35, Jesus called the crowd to himself along with his disciples and said, 
If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's pretty serious. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. Isn't that an interesting paradox? Whoever tries to save his life will end up losing it. But whoever loses his life will really save it. Very early in my life as a a follower of Jesus, I read a statement in the diary of Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot was uh, a man who had a very clear goal of taking the message of Christ to the world. And he and four friends of his went to South America, to Ecuador, to reach a previously unreached tribe there for Christ. And he and his four friends were killed in 1956 by the Alca Indians. Subsequently, that whole group of Indians turned as a people to the Lord. But Eliot wrote in his diary a statement which gripped me and I've never forgotten. He said, The person is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Life does not consist of taking, but of giving. Life consists, first of all, and fundamentally, of giving ourselves to the Lord. The second characteristic of this sacrifice that we read about is it's holy. It's a change of ownership. Paul writes to the Corinthians, you're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your life. You were bought with a price. Who owns our lives? Who owns our time? Who owns the privilege of changing channels or turning off the television in our house? Who's in control of our checkbook? Who owns our dreams for our career and our future? Are those ours? Or have we signed a contract and turned them over to someone else? Paul says that the proper response in view of all that God has done for us is to sign over everything to God. There needs to be a radical change of ownership. Thirdly, this sacrifice that Paul talks about, he says, is pleasing to God. It corresponds to what God wants from us. You know, sometimes we feel so small. I don't know how you feel, but sometimes... uh, I'm trying to get smaller, by the way. Um, But I don't mean that kind of size. I mean, sometimes we feel so insignificant. As if nothing really mattered that we did. But you know, if we bring ourselves to God and say, I'm yours, not only can we be assured that this sacrifice that we are bringing is living, 
that it's holy, that it belongs to God then, but we can also know that it's pleasing to God. He will accept it. Whatever we have or whatever we don't have. Two weeks ago on Sunday, when Horst Klaus Hoffmann and I were sitting in the service at Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto with two German friends, the mayor of our town and the school director who came with us, uh, the service was, the theme of the service was a celebration of life. A high school girl, I think she was a sophomore or junior, got up and she began to tell a story about a baby that was born. This baby uh, was born and as the doctor delivered the baby said, uh, she's going to make it, but I, I wish she wouldn't. Because this baby was born without any legs. In our day, perhaps they would have determined that early on that this baby was uh, lacking in legs, and maybe she never would have been born. But this young girl went on and explained about this baby being born, how that her parents, in spite of the limitations of this child, loved her and gave her a dream that there was a God who loved life, a God who actually hated the things in the world that had made us as human beings in our world, the kind of world that a baby could be born without legs, that God was a lover of life and gave this girl a dream. And she told how that she was so grateful that this baby had lived because that baby was her mother. And uh, then the mother came up on the stage and there wasn't a dry eye in the congregation. And she shared how that she, as a little girl, had often wondered if anybody could love her with her limitations and her disability. How that as she was driving along a dark country road in the back seat of her father's car at eight years old, she looked out and saw the stars and said, God, I, I know I'm not attractive to people, but maybe someday, somewhere out there, there's a prince that would love me. Little did she know that less than a hundred miles away there was a young boy who God was preparing to be her husband. And then the whole family got up on stage, all five of them, and we all just kind of collapsed in a puddle. Um, I don't know if your life is anywhere near that damaged as this lady's life was, physically or emotionally or spiritually. But I know one thing that I can assure you on the basis of what God's Word says, that if you will bring your life to God with all of its damagedness and its pain and its scars, that He will be pleased to accept it. It will delight His heart. The story is told of a master painter who had his uh, studio in the upper floor of his home, and one day his little boy got in, and uh, decided he was going to help work on Dad's new painting and took a black brush and wiped a few black streaks across the painting. His dad didn't throw the painting away. Instead, as the master painter that he was, he incorporated those new lines into a picture that was even more beautiful than it would have been. And that's the secret. 
You know that little song, Something Beautiful, Something Good? All my confusion He understood. All I had to offer Him was brokenness and strife. But He made something beautiful out of my life. God will be pleased and delighted. He'll smile if you bring your life to Him with all of its brokenness and all of its pain. God loves life and He's the life giver. Thirdly, Paul says, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, my friends, to offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, I understand my friend Chris talked about worship last week, so I'm not going to go into this in great detail. But worship is the purpose of life. We can see the goal where Paul's headed. All of life should be a melody, a song of praise to God. Unlike the pagans who could divide between life and religion, Paul said, no, there's no division. That all of life is to be a a song, a melody of God, for God. That there should be no division between our faith and our thinking, between Sunday and Monday. Ethics is a fancy word for how we live out faith in daily life. How we make decisions in our business. Is it honest? Is it fair? Is it pure? Is it right? Is it fair to all the parties concerned? Those are questions that God wants us to ask. What does life following Jesus look like? That's what the Apostle Paul here wants to deal with. And he says it's something that pulses with life. It's something that is committed to God under His ownership, and it is lived according to His pattern and His plan. The problem that we face today is that when someone says he or she is a Christian, there is no content left to that saying. It is like saying he or she has a religious hobby. It's like saying he or she enjoys raising rabbits. They can be a terrible person. They can be cruel to their family. But they like raising rabbits. In the same way, when we hear that someone is a Christian, so often, for most people, that has very little content to it. Or negative content. That isn't true everywhere in the world. In Russia, for instance, uh, I'll give the Baptists a little praise here. They like to hire Baptists to work in the construction industry. Why? For one simple reason. They know that on Monday morning, the Baptists won't be drunk from the weekend and they'll be able to get on the crane and operate it without destroying it. Now, there's a lot of things that people don't like about these folk that are believers in Russia. They're different. They're kind of odd. But one thing you can depend on, actually two things, they don't destroy their lives drinking, and they never let anyone die alone. That's a pretty good testimony, I'd say. What do people think about us? All of life is to be an act of centering on God, of orienting the different parts of our life, to God's thinking and God's standard. 
In our fellowship, the Reichenbach Fellowship, we talk about work being need, needing to be of three kinds. Headwork, heartwork, and handwork. Headwork, writing, thinking, working in publications, teaching, is not more important than handwork, repairing buildings, putting in plumbing. And both need heart work, need to be done in harmony with God. Finally, Paul says, all of this takes place, all of this act of worship to God takes place, verse 2, through a process of saying no and yes. He said, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's not the best way to translate that verse. I really like the way that J.B. Phillips translates it. He says, don't let the culture around you squeeze you into its mold. Don't let the culture around you squeeze you into its mold. Following Jesus means joining the resistance fighters. It means being part of God's partisans of being part of a band of people that are offering resistance to the world around them, that are living in a different way, that are marching to a different drummer. And secondly, it says, be transformed. And that's where the power comes from to do this. Be transformed by God's Holy Spirit. What does this mean? At the Reichenbach Fellowship, we have... We had in November a conference, a congress, on the biblical and Christian perspective on the issue of homosexuality. This conference had about 180 participants and grew out of a very quiet kind of ministry that has been taking place for about 10 years with over 150 young men who have struggled with homosexual inclinations and wanted to change. Many of them have. And the very first thing, we have some of these men living with us in the community now. You can't handle too many at once, but many of them have a real desire to change. And the very first thing that they have to recognize is they have to say yes to God's yes and no to God's and yes to God's no. What does that mean? Saying yes to God's yes means saying yes to God's plan for life. Man, woman. God, us. Living by his word. Saying yes to God's no means that there may be things that we desire to do that are not in God's plan. And we need to say yes to God's no. And then, we are faced with a battle. Whether the problem is homosexuality, dishonesty, promiscuous living heterosexually, poor treatment of other people, uncontrollable anger, whatever the problem is, God wants us to bring that to Him and present it to Him and say yes to life. And also, yes, yes to his boundaries. Because, you know, God's boundaries are meant for our good. 
And real following of Jesus means saying yes to God's yes and yes to God's no. And the result is, according to the Apostle Paul, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. It's good. That means it's morally commendable. It's right. It looks good and it feels just and fair. It's pleasing to God. And thirdly, it's perfect. It leads on to perfection. It leads on to wholeness. Have you ever thought about the fact that sin is essentially boring? That may sound surprising at first glance. But, you know, the problem with sin is is that once you've done it, it tends to get kind of boring. And you have to go looking for something else. A little different. A little more exciting. A little more challenging. Someone once asked a very wealthy man how much money was enough, and he said a little more. He was a captive. A captive of his wealth. Sin maims and cripples us, but God loves life, and he wants to give us wholeness. I'd like to read in closing a paraphrase of this passage from the uh, book by Eugene Peterson, The Message, because I think it summarizes what the Apostle Paul really was driving at. Here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering, embracing what God does for you as the best thing you can do for Him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what He wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to the level of its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you and develops well-formed maturity in you. Let's pray. Lord, you are so attractive to us. You are life itself. And our response can be no other, Lord, than to just say, Take my life. I want it to be yours. Amen.